Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. This episode, I'm super excited to bring the conversation I had with three wonderful uh, women. They are Mackenzie Cooley, Anna Toledano, and Dugu Yildirim. Uh, these three uh, women were the editors for uh, the newest book, Natural Things in Early Modern Worlds. Uh, it's a fabulous book, um, and there's a collection of um, essays or chapters by different uh, folks that talk about uh, early natural things in uh, early modern worlds. And I was very fortunate to uh, talk with the three of them about um, how they edited the book and then their contributions as well in the book. Um, we start by talking about how they came to write and edit the book together, what that process was like, their early origins, um, and how they went throughout by, you know, having three people to, to edit a, a book. Um, when I talked with Mackenzie, she was an, an arbiter of the conversation. She um, had two chapters in the book, and we talk about Bezoar stones and their medicinal purpose. Uh, we also talk about ambergris and its medicinal uses and its aesthetic, uh, and also how it had purposes um, such as for perfumes. Uh, with Dugu, we talked about coffee in the Middle Ottoman Empire. Um, it's fascinating, fascinating uh, history there and, and some of the ways in which we look at it in terms of embodiment. Um, and then with, with Anna, I talked about uh, Azra, who was an engineer turned naturalist and what that was like, uh, how he used local terms and labels and some of the significance. And, and then we end the conversation about how we see natural things uh, in the past and in the present, and humans' continual interaction with the natural world. Um, I was quite surprised at how we were able to streamline the conversation so well. Um, uh, these these three uh, women were were wonderful to to talk to. They're super super brilliant. Um, I, I really respect all of the research they're doing in their fields, and they were super lovely to to talk with me. But to, to have four people on a conversation, um, it just went super, uh, super well. There was, there was no real uh, kind of crosstalk or, you know, people kind of getting, you know, kind of bunched up together or too many rabbit trails. It was pretty streamlined and, and they were just absolutely wonderful. And we were able to, to talk about um, their work with, with the book, their chapters that they wrote in the book and also their editing. Um, and then, you know, kind of a, a pitch for some of the work that they can do as uh, historians um, of science and of knowledge. Um, they're all doing fabulous work. And uh, I, I greatly respect each and every one of them. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation and all of the conversations at convergendialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. So subscribe, follow, and, and share widely. And uh, support, support their work. They're doing really good stuff. And uh, now I bring you Mackenzie, Anna, and Duke. I am here with three wonderful guests. Uh, I'm here with Mackenzie Cooley, Anna Toledano, Dugu Yildirim, and they are the editors and uh, authors as well of uh, some of the chapters in the wonderful book, Natural Things in Early Modern Worlds. Um, this is out through Rutledge, and it is absolutely uh, wonderful, which I enjoyed reading, and it's absolutely gorgeous as well. I like all of the illustrations and everything. So if you guys could just... Uh, 
kind of introduce yourself? Just give a brief snapshot of your uh, lives, I guess, professionally and uh, academically and, um, and uh, anything else that might be relevant. Sounds great. Well, I'm Mackenzie Cooley. I'm so delighted to talk about this project because I feel like it takes us way back to our, some of our shared roots at Stanford University, yeah. where uh, Dugu, Anna, and I had the chance to meet. But um, I finished up at Stanford in 2018, and then I, I moved uh, back to um, the, the East Coast and did a postdoc at Cornell and took up a tenure track job at the um, Hamilton College in the history department there. And so I'm currently based in upstate New York and have we've been, you know, working on this book at a distance for a while with our kind of shared love of weird naturalia that kind of connected us across both continents and oceans. Mm, that's great. That's great. Uh, Anna, how about yourself? Sure. Um, so I am just about to finish up my dissertation uh, in the history department. So I was the most junior of the three of us in the program. Um, and my work uh, specifically has to do with natural history collecting in the Spanish empire, mostly Spanish America. Um, but I came from um, the museum world. And so I never really intended to do the PhD with the goal of becoming a professor um, or, or going into official higher education. And I feel like the book project was kind of this perfect intersection of all of our different professional lives in that it was this work of really deep scholarship, but also this work that we could imagine appearing at a museum bookshop or mm. um, in some of the professional museum venues that I where I present my work. So um, that was kind of my touch on uh, on the end of it. And so at the moment, I'm looking um, for jobs in the museum sector, uh, but I'm finishing up probably in December. So I have a few months left to uh, to to do that. Very nice. Yeah, you, you kind of, uh, I guess, cross the finish line. You're right there. So it's, uh, it's always so a, close. A very yeah. exciting <laughs> feeling when you get across it. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Dugu, what is your what is your uh, background and your area of focus? And first of all, thank you so much for this invite. I'm so excited to talk about the book and maybe for our future projects as well. Um, so I also graduated from Stanford in 2021 when COVID hit. <laughs> um, so then I went to Italy for my postdoc for a year. And now I'm back to U.S. Um, I accepted a tenure track position at the University of Tennessee. Um, at Knoxville. So I'm based there for now. I teach um, classes on Middle Eastern history, Ottoman history, um, food history, and history of science and medicine and technology in general. And um, we started this project um, while we were all graduate students talking about natural things during coffee breaks. So that's a very um, dear project to me. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I have to say, just uh, that has to be quite the difference going from Italy to Tennessee. That has to be a very, very yes, different, quite. different experience. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, that's, that's great. That's great. Okay, yeah. So you guys have kind of uh, mentioned this already. So I was going to ask, just how did this come about? The way it looks is that the three of you edited it. And that's how you guys how it's listed. Uh, I think Mackenzie, you have two chapters, uh, and then uh, each of you um, have uh, another chapter. So how did you guys, I guess, um, you, you said the idea kind of formed when you were all kind of together and then it kind of continued on, but how did it kind of get more form where you were going to have different types of people 
Um, was there other things you wanted to include, but you weren't able to? And, and how did you guys kind of, I guess, work together on the editing part for the the chapters that weren't uh, weren't your own? Who wants to start off? <laughs> Take it away, Anna. <laughs> sure. Um, so we had an extremely collaborative process in this project from the very beginning. Um, so as Doogie mentioned, we kind of began talking about this uh, probably around my first year, I would say, maybe in the program, end of my first year, beginning of my second year, which I've been in, this is my eighth year now. So you can think about how long this project has been brewing. Um, and we were discussing the overlaps and kind of the methodologies in our work and also the holes that we kind of saw in the scholarship in terms of um, was there scholarship being done uh, with manuscript sources, kind of were people writing natural history from um, sources that they found in the archive, not just books that were printed in big European cities. And interestingly, that question was kind of coming up for all three of us, even though we don't necessarily work in exactly the same geographic areas. Um, and that was where kind of the collaboration began. And of course, there's many, many themes that could fit under that capacious um, category, uh, of course. And we had, you know, chapters along the way that uh, we had many contributors to the project who um, who gave talks or who participated in other events that we had who were also not were not necessarily featured in the book project. But I would not say that that does that that would say I wouldn't say that that um, precludes them from being part of the project in any way, shape or form, because this project, I would say, is much more than just the book. The book is kind of one product of this whole way of thinking about natural history that really brought the three of us together. Um, yeah, and I guess we should also just say that Stanford is really a hothouse for thinking about the history of natural history. There are some really fabulous faculty um, in the history and history of uh, history and philosophy of science program right now, um, who are all really interested in these questions about the definitions of life, the way that that scientists, writ really quite large, right, have started to consider. Um, the 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 capacity of nature right and that's really a story that we tend to tell through the angle of the scientific revolution but what we're finding is that the the more that the, the global historical turn really seizes uh, um uh grabs a hold of the field um the more that old scientific revolution story that really centers on europe has been questioned but so right at the uh, during the time that we were all at Stanford, uh, Paula Finland was there. So she's our our um, mentor and advisor. She also has a chapter in the book. Um, we also all worked in different capacities with Jessica Riskin, who works on the definition of life. She was really key to some of the early conversations about defining natural history, and so too was Londa Schiebinger, who's written a lot on plants and empire, on abortifacients, and on really taking botany and integrating it into the study of natural history. Mm. And so between that museum studies focus, focus on the history of life and this like attention to botany, we had a really, we were really lucky to have the kind of mentorship that we did um, that then made it possible for us to launch a, a, the, a site on, at Stanford that really kind of focused on natural history at Stanford at, from which natural things then grew. I, the question I have here, and any, any one of you can answer this, is you talk about it as kind of, I guess, a, not maybe not the why, but the unique relationship or about natural things and humans and making that connection 
um, in, in early modern world, you guys kind of define what that is. And but maybe just chat a little bit before we get to some of the specifics about this relationship and this ongoing relationship between natural things in our world in the past, but also currently uh, between humans. And and is there, you know, is that kind of a bi-directional kind of thing, or is it one sense one more unidirectional? Just chat about that interaction, I guess. Yeah, I think we are all very interested in the new histories um, of um, beyond the human, like how we can define a history beyond human beings. And then, but we also have to think about the relation between uh, humans and their environments and natural things. Um, so it's a complicated um, question precisely because history itself is always interested in the agency question, right? So when you you know, try to get rid of the human beings, then where you will put the agency? So that was one of the um, questions we had to deal with. Um, but we didn't get rid of the humans. Humans are there who are uh, part of the me meaning making uh, in the history of natural things. Um, so this is what we um, try to include in the in the volume. And the other thing is that what is really natural history? So we know that this is the early origins of botany. But um, when you think about its own history, historiography, it doesn't really speak to um, non-Western forms of knowledge, like natural knowledge, um, as, a, as a term. So we, um, we talk about this a lot, uh, which I find that... What, in the beginning, it was both challenging, but at the end, I find it very, very uh, rewarding experience to talk about what do we really mean by natural um, history. So we uh, try to challenge it a little bit uh, in the introduction, especially why we don't use it in the volume. And instead, we introduce uh, the new term, nature studies, um, to be more inclusive, um, to talk about history of science in general around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I like the way you gave that, that kind of explanation. Is, is there anything uh, you, uh, you two wanted to jump in here on? Well, I don't know. I think that the, um, the history of science and environmental history have, up to this point, really, developed in these two parallel tracks, right? One is concerned with instrumentation and measurement and what constitutes objectivity. And the other has been concerned with the material world, right? The physical environment that surrounds us and how we can manage those resources and indeed have failed to manage those resources really well. And um, I think that this book is a part of this movement to bring together those two subfields, because so clearly, you know, as we see the idea of science on the rise within um, uh, uh, early modern history, right, the the um, path toward experimentation that's going to be at the center of what we see as scientific knowledge today. This is the very same period that the global environment is most dreadfully under threat, right? And so this is really a book that tries to unite those two stories by following how elements of nature that were studied by naturalists or by scientists or just by curious people um, became how those those objects were alienated from the living nature of which they were a part. Yeah, uh, I think that's great. I think trying to have this kind of uh, merging in a in another framework of how to look at these things, I think, is is much needed, which I think is what made it so 
uh, appealing, at least to myself and and uh, hopefully to many other people. So, okay, so let's start with you, Mackenzie. We'll, we'll get to the first part. You can talk about your two chapters, uh, but the first part is uh, uh, called manipulated. I'm assuming there's for certain things from from the natural world that have been manipulated for other uses. Um, I didn't know about the, how, how do you say this? Uh, Bezoar, is that how you say this? Although my aunt, who's a pathologist, works on GI tracts, took me into the gross room to go see them in humans. And she said, we found another bezoar. So, you know, call it what you want. Or just stroke I, to think about Severus. Right? I, I, never, I never heard of this. And it was, it kind of blew my mind. Um, so could you just kind of tell us what it is, uh, what animals, you know, this has been found in and then how it's be, it was used for medicinal qualities and, and for other, uh, um, things as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I see my two contributions to this book as being like really grody things you find in surprising beasts. Um, so on one hand, that's the bezoar stone. That's what we're going to talk about at first. And then the other is called ambergris. Um, so bezoars, bezoars, whatever they are. Um, uh, it, those of you who have uh, read Harry Potter will know that, you know, the potions master cites um, one of the, the prize antidotes that will cure you of any malady is supposed to be the bezoar stone, right? And uh, JK Rowling with all of the problems associated with her work, um, nonetheless, has a pretty solid idea of early modern history in a way. And indeed, um, in the early modern world, in a time that magic was real and surrounded in animated collections and potion making was just medicine making, um, the Bezoar Stone was supposed to be the ultimate antidote, right? So it turned out, so it's a, it's a stone that develops in the digestive systems of ruminants. So as I mentioned, we'll, we can still find them in like people who, humans who eat too much of their hair, right? They'll get a kind of bezoar stone. That's what happens. Don't do that. Um, but so too will like goats as well as llamas and alpacas, but so too will iguanas and even manatees who had, were diagnosed as having, having bezoar stones. And so these are, uh, you know, we would see this as a pathology, right? But in the early modern period, it was seen as the bezoar was seen as a key medicament that could be the perfect gift for the man who had everything. Um, so, if you wanted to give, you know, your your great ruler something to cure himself from any disease, you might want to go and find a goat from which you could remove a, a bezoar stone. So, yeah, pretty pretty wild definition for this object. That once you start looking, you you see them um, all over. At the very least, the early modern period. But it's one of these medicines that that never catches on in modernity for for obvious reasons, right? We would see any effects that early modern saw as caused by bezoars as something that we would attribute to the placebo. So you, you mentioned that it, these unite histories of animals, medicine, and, and humans. I guess, what did this do for understanding the idea at the time of taking certain things from other entities or animals and having medicinal, potentially medicinal properties, and also what was, I guess, the kind of relationship that humans had with animals as a as a as an object, but also an object to have multiple sources and uses and finding that at the time, of course, you know, we have 
uh, you can have a various opinions about animal ethics now, but at the time, what was the kind of understanding of the relationship between humans and, and animals and how they could use different parts for different things? So, I mean, you really got to that that question in uh, you're drawing attention to this term manipulated, which we use to animate the first third of the book. So many of the natural things that we draw attention to could be understood as manipulated. And that's because so much of early modern people's visions of the natural world are based on this idea that they not only have the right so much as the duty to manipulate the nature around them, right? Um, many of the the historical actors who I trace in that chapter are um, are, are have some uh, kind of Christian belief. But at the end of the day, they believe that all of nature was made for them, for their use by God, right? And that they have the right to access its secrets. And the Bezoar Stone is one of those perfect stories of nature's secrets, right? It's literally a magical stone hidden in the bowels of beasts, right? If you just cut them open, then you'll find the divine cure. Um, and so I think what you see through, so basically the, the chapter that I have on, on the Bezoir um, follows uh, um, the creation of a, of a global medical market for these stones. So at first there's a reliance on stones taken out of goats uh, um, and increasingly that market is diversified, right? There are all sorts of animals that can provide bezoar stones. But by the time we get to the, the early 18th century, there's some doubt about the, the stone's efficacy mm. and that market starts to shrink and um, uh, the bezoar stone comes to be a taxonomic description, right? So there are different um, ruminants that are described as bezoarticus as a relic of their, the centrality of these stones. The point being, though, that the Bezoir is a story of some th- an element of nature that could be ripped out, manipulated, and used for human consumption, and that that exploitation was a real uh, motivator for a lot of naturalists and merchants alike in their explorations of the natural world. So what we have here is a history of science and the history of the environment that can't really be separated in their telling. Yeah, that's that's very nicely put. So, where does the what is it? How do you say this? Hamburgers? How do you say this? Hamburgers. Yeah, hamburgers. Like, choose your own. Choose pick <laughs> poison about the weird pronunciations here. <laughs> so, this has been found in Wales, but I guess the and it was used as medicine, but it was also used as perfume. I guess talk about how that realization or that um, understanding came to be of one thing from a, a natural source could be used for multiple different things, such as um, a quality that could be helpful, that is somewhat curative, at least that was the thought at the time, and also something for more uh, aesthetics, if you will. I mean, people used to think of aesthetics as vision, but I guess it could be for, for scent as well. How how did that come about? And, and what does that tell us about, again, the interaction we have with, you know, because most people don't think about it, but, you know, we have various you know perfumes and soaps and things like that they come from uh, certain uh, uh, resources on the planet so at this time how what's unique about this or how is it separate from the bezoar and, and how did it have these different uses 
Yeah, in many ways, the the ambergris story and the bazaar story are really intimately intertwined, right? You find mentions of ambergris on the same medical lists and old pharmacopoeia, which are old lists of drugs that are the key ingredients you need to create medicines in in the early modern world. Um, Ambergris and bazaars are all on those same lists. Um, so the ambergris chapter is really an outgrowth of uh, my interest in animal medicines. Um, and I was working with this research assistant at the time, Kate Biederman, a fabulous student at Hamilton College. And uh, she'd done a lot of work for the, the Bezoir chapter. And she kept coming to me and saying, I've, I've, Professor Cooley, Professor Cooley, I've found another mention of this ambergris thing. And I don't know what it is. And it seems to come from whales, right? And indeed, um, just in the news right right this week, there's been uh, a pathologist doing a whale autopsy off the Canary Islands in Las Palmas Mm -hmm. found uh, a piece of ambergris that's worth about $500,000, right? So ambergris continues to be highly valued today, unlike the Bezoar stone, which is, again, a a pathological entity. Um, so, I mean, to your point about how these uses develop, uh, like, you know, ambergris can be used for all sorts of different things. It's a blockage in whales that can be used for perfuming. It's used as a binding agent in a lot of medicines. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the one of the most important differences between early modern medicine and, and medicine today or is its lack of disciplinarity, right? Mm-hmm. The people who first encountered and popularized this idea of of ambergris as medicine were not interested in quartering off its different potential use cases. They saw perfume and smelling well as a key part of good health, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the remedies we found for ambergris is literally creating a perfume with it that you could waft up, um, shall we say, uh, a lady's nether regions, and that would help her if she were experiencing some negative effects down there, right? And this is all part of a, an early modern confidence in the wholeness of, of good health, right? And that's why a gift like a Bezoar stone can be so valuable, although you can't quite pin down what makes it so effective as a cure. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. And it's interesting how it's this still has some kind of uh, literally cash value, if you will. We're still seeing it currently in modern day. It's it's very, very interesting. Um, okay, I'm going to gonna go on to the next part. Uh, do you have the uh, wonderful privilege of telling us about coffee? Um, I'm a big fan of coffee. Uh, and um, obviously, I've had Turkish coffee, which is absolutely delightful. Um, so I really enjoyed your chapter. Um, could you tell us about um, to just kind of parachute us into the the time frame? You spend a lot of time in the Ottoman Empire. Of course, the Ottomans are deeply fascinating to me. Six hundred plus years. People study early, middle, late Ottoman. It's such a massive time frame that they span. Um, I guess how was in in the Ottoman Empire at different points maybe. How was coffee uh, received um, and this subjective experience of taste uh, that became highly valued? It just kind of set the stage for us a little bit. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. So even in Turkey today, like um, the term Turkish coffee, it's so um, dense because, you know, if you go to Greece, for example, you drink the same kind of like coffee, but they call it like Greek coffee. (laughs) 
So among the nationalists, um, there, there are like ongoing debates about what is it, right? But it's actually uh, coming from Yemen uh, in the 16th century, especially in the Ottoman Empire in Istanbul. So um, coffee's own history is not so much fun, um, even though it, it, was a, it became an iconic beverage of the early modern period, especially of this uh, 17th and 18th centuries. But the beginning of it, the early history of it, is not that a happy story. Um, in the 16th century, for example, when it was coming um, to Istanbul, Ottoman Sultan um, tried to ban it a, a few times uh, because of the ongoing debates about whether a Muslim, for example, should drink coffee or not. And precisely because it's not written in the Quran, um, Muslim jurists... Um, had to debate with the um, medical practitioners to decide whether it's healthy for someone's health or not, or is it intoxicating. So there were like lots of debates going on because in the uh, 16th century and 17th century, when people were thinking about uh, food or beverages, they were immediately talking about medicines. So almost everything... Um, has a kind of like medicinal um, uh, interest in people's mind. So that was, there were lots of uh, controversy going on regarding the uh, bans of uh, coffee drinking and, uh, of course, coffee houses. But, of course, we you know now um, they were not successful because coffee survived uh, in Istanbul. And then, you know, with some... Uh, merchants, especially Armenian uh, merchants, for example, um, it went to Europe, but there were like European travelers in Istanbul during that time, especially in the 17th century. And I would say that, especially again, after the uh, siege of Vienna, the second siege of Vienna uh, by the Ottomans, which was a failure uh, from the Ottoman side, the coffee became even more um, uh, interesting. Uh, to Europeaners. Um, so that is a kind of like history. So you can see the lots of like debates in the 16th uh, century taking place in Ottoman Istanbul. And when you look at the 17th century, the debates about like whether Christian bodies this time should consume something foreign, right? Because it's not coming from where they are uh, living. It's coming from a different climate. So climate is everything that defines what um, someone should be eating and drinking. So there were lots of debates, but also um, curiosity about the new, I don't want to say this word, but exotic. This is sometimes how they define it, um, beverages or medicinal substances. So this, there are like parallels between the Ottoman um, side of the his, uh, story and the European side of it. It's just the Ottoman part is a little bit earlier, one century earlier. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's, it, it keeps repeating itself um, because, you know, then Europeans um, in the 17th century especially try to look at the Ottoman sources to decide what Ottomans were doing in order to understand whether coffee was, you know, good for someone's health or how did they, you know, come up with a kind of like agreement between medicine and religion, so on and so forth. Um, so I would say that that, that was like a complicated um, history to begin with. The, the, the main question I have from, from the, the, the chapter that you had in the book was, 
there's this you're kind of getting there touching on it a second ago which was this this idea of the body and how this a kind of um not embodiment but how for humans the experience through the body uh is essential uh for for many thinkers have thought this way and so you talk about this emphasis on melancholy connected with drinking coffee uh, I was curious about that. What was the thought at the time historically? And does it have anything to do with the, the knowledge then or now or what have you about uh, how coffee or the caffeine in coffee is a stimulant and how it can have alterations for some people, I guess, you know, you're more alert or things like that. Um, especially if, if, if listeners have had Turkish coffee, this is quite, it's quite strong for, <laughs> for a lot of people. It's great. It's very, very good, but it's very strong. So talk about this kind of how it was received kind of for the body and how if there were or were not changes in this emphasis on on the the melancholy there. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. This is a very interesting question. So the um, shared medical discourse both in the Islamic world and Europe during that time, it goes back to the um, ancient motto, which says, uh, you are what you eat. And so if you then, let's say, you're someone living in France in 17th century, and if you're drinking something coming from the Ottoman lands, should you drink it or not? Because this is something foreign, right? And you should not be taking it into your body because there's kind of like um, correlation between your own body and the climate, right? And the environment. So it can poison your body. That was kind of like a shared understanding in the medical discourse of the time. So um, in the 17th century, um, uh, scholars and physician, uh, physicians and uh, practitioners were really interested in the questions of whether there is a kind of like epidemic, uh, which generally hit uh, those who read a lot and think a lot, which is melancholy. Hypochondria, um, and they said that, for example, when you look at how merchants, for example, advertise coffee drinking, they said that oh, you cannot find melancholic person, for example, uh, in the Ottoman Empire because you know even though they are very prone to melancholy, they drink um, coffee so that then then they can get rid of this illness. Um, so, you know, they don't have this kind of like disease, some of the merchants were saying, or, you know, um, the others were saying that hot beverages, for example, can you can keep you healthy, so then you will not be melancholic. Um, so, because, as again, as I said, there's a kind of like relation between food and medicine during that time period. Um, so they were so concerned about uh, melancholy. Um, they think that it might hit to, you know, wide um, range of people over time. So that was a kind of like advertisement they use. But it has a kind of like um, medical base as well, because really, when you look at the medical sources of the time um, in Europe, especially, and also in the Ottoman Empire, there was a really, really uh, big concern about melancholy as a new disease, emotional disease. Um, so as I talk a little bit in the um, chapter, there were kind of like two main um, um, sides of the uh, debate, which is iatrochemistry and mechanical understanding of uh, medicine. So in order to understand how 
um, food and beverages affect your body, they talk about the digestion digestion system. So all the um, emotional um, diseases they think uh, were part of this kind of like digestion issues. So the question is whether coffee is good for digestion or not, and should it be consumed hot or cold? Um, it's so similar to other debates ongoing, such as, for example, is uh, wine drinking should be served hot or cold, and whether people really um, drink water, uh, you know, uh, cold or hot as well. So uh, there were the uh, main debates uh, in the medical discourse of the time, and coffee became a, you know, interesting object to think with uh, all of these um, questions. Yeah, it's, just, it's terribly fascinating because it, it sounds, we still in today's, in the modern day, we still have those conversations. Yeah, we still have those yeah. conversations about the impact that certain um, things that we're putting in our body or, you know, in terms of portion size or quantity or what's in it or what's not in it is still how it affects us, how it affects our uh, GI tract, et cetera. So it's just really interesting to see for us as humans, this this kind of um, interest or curiosity into what is it about what we're consuming into our body or or how um, things are with our body uh, in terms of food or what have you that are um, still an ongoing question. It's still trying to be discerned what what is and what isn't. So that maybe that was interesting to me. And it was also because, you know, <laughs> I've made the joke before that, um, you know, coffee has become a, a global kind of uh, uh, well-accepted stimulus. You know, people aren't doing lines of Coke in the, well, maybe some people are, but people aren't doing lines of Coke in the morning to get through the workday, right? They drink a cup of, you know, good coffee and it's fine, right? Um, I, I mean, I do the same thing, but it's interesting how we have a kind of uh, kind of shared uh, understanding of that, but understanding what that looked like, you know, 600 years ago or 500 years ago. And and then the the chronology of that is 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 deeply fascinating. Okay. Um, Anna, yeah, last but not least, uh, you had a really cool chapter. I really liked it. It's uh, Felix de Azara. Is is this guy? He was um, where was he from again? Was he Spain? No, he was from Spain. Yeah, Spain. And is this right? He, he was engineer turned naturalist. Is that sort yes. of a self made naturalist? Maybe just 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 uh, jump us into his kind of unlikely story. So he was uh, an interesting character, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I didn't select him because I thought he was some sort of um, great example of, you know, someone fighting the empire. He definitely was an agent of the empire, but it's so intriguing that he managed to um, come at it from such an unlikely place. Um, so he was born in Spain um, and came to the Americas, what's now uh, kind of the, the region of Rio de la Plata, which is like where Montevideo and Uruguay and Argentina and the river, they all in Paraguay, they all meet there. Um, and this was a strategic area of a lot of interest for the Spanish at the time in the 17 in 1780 when they sent him there because um, it was time again to draw map lines with the Portuguese which happened every time there was a new treaty of Tordesillas, you know, trying the Pope trying to decide, make everybody happy with what land they were taking. Um, and of course, the Portuguese didn't come because they didn't want to draw a line because then it would say this side is mine and this side is yours instead of this side is mine and this side is also mine. Um, so poor Azara, who was there, you know, as a surveyor 
um, not as a naturalist. He was there to, to survey the landscape and, and help with the line drawing. We just was stuck there for 20 years. And he kind of made the best of it. I mean, he seemed kind of like a weird dude um, from, from all the things that he's written and people have written about him. Um, so he, in order to pass the time, he said, you know, I'm going to start writing about the animals. And so he wrote not only things related to his job, he did a lot of beautiful mapping projects and um, did a ton of kind of anthropological statistic statistical analyses of um, the nearby towns, uh, the landscapes. He went, you know, taking heights of different mountains and interviewing different local peoples um, to learn more about their customs and, you know, write it in probably in, in pretty racist style, of course, but um, all these books are, if you read Spanish or English or pretty much any European language, you'll be able to because find them on Google Books because they've been translated into so many languages since he was so popular um, in the early 1800s, which is really quite interesting. Um, and now nobody really knows who he is. Um, so he also wrote treatises on quadrupeds, on birds. Um, those were kind of the uh, birds were really one of his primary interests in terms of um, types of animals that he was really interested in looking at. So the question I was thinking here when I was reading this 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 uh, chapter was a, a lot of the times, and I don't like doing this presentism kind of thing, so, so forgive me, but a lot of the times people will have this kind of like do your own research kind of thing. And I can, I don't need a degree in this or that. And I can just, you know, watch a couple of YouTube videos, read some articles and it's done. Right. We don't need experts. That's fine. That's not what was happening here. Right. So there is something about obviously having a background as an engineer is helpful, but I guess talk about how him, I mean, how that may have set him up, but this kind of, okay, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to use the time well, but, what was it about good observational skills and then how he documented that with care that was, uh, as you mentioned, you know, really instructive for other people later down the road? Kind of just talk about the kind of difference or nuance of of doing something maybe he wasn't professionally trained in or or had some experience with, but was still able to treat it with a lot of respect and, you know, was able to be really helpful uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he. Um... I think he benefited from being isolated in some ways in that sense and making it up as he went because this he kind of coincided with this perfect moment in the history of natural history where people started turning more naturalists started turning more to nature as opposed to kind of philosophizing in their own minds necessarily about various ideas. I mean, that's a very broad brush kind of statement that I just made. But um, this rise of empiricism, this really big focus on looking at what animals are actually doing while they're alive, instead of studying their bones and skins in the museum when they're dead. Mm. Um, not that there aren't amazing things that you can't learn about their anatomy from skeletons and all of these sorts of things. But eventually, you know, both of these types of data, skeletal and life data, would lead Charles Darwin to come up with his theory of evolution in the next century. So both of these kinds of um, types of knowledge were really important to get to that conclusion. And this was the time, the late 1700s, when using your observational skills was kind of a big defense of having local people work on their own nature studies. So there was a, it was also in my own research for my dissertation, I'm making the argument that, um, naturalists in Mexico and Guatemala before their independent wars of independence, um, argued with Spanish naturalists saying that you don't understand us, you don't understand our nature. 
So but humans and animals being intertwined in this ecology that is defined by the place that they're in. And so you cannot govern us. We must govern ourselves. Mm. So that was kind of the apotheosis of that argument. And Azra was kind of at the beginning stages of that time period, I would say, from what I've what from what I know of the Spanish Empire in particular, other empires, I would be eager to hear about comparative studies. Um, but he coming from, as you mentioned, being really well-trained in documentation and also being kind of a stickler for documentation himself, which I guess made him a good a good surveyor and a good engineer, um, that he was very good at observing, you know, I see this bird, it rises at this time, in this season, it has this color plumage. So there could be arguments that seeing the animal alive was much more important than seeing mm. it while it was dead because there were mistakes made about various different types of animals and their behavior. Um, some uh, naturalists in Spain thought that um, summer and winter plumage of the same species was actually two different species, or they thought male and female plumage was also two different species, but they wouldn't see them mating. But uh, Azura did for 20 years. So he knew what was going on. Um, and that was part of not necessarily his argument, but his his work was used by other scholars who were mind had their mind on differentiating themselves from Spain, which he wasn't wasn't really on his radar at all. It wasn't he wasn't he wasn't think he went back to Spain afterwards in 1801 and, and died there. Um, so he he definitely was loyal to Spain and was a Spanish guy through and through. But it was then interestingly that being isolated in that environment, he didn't and not being trained in the traditional European way of in the academy of doing natural history that he inadvertently kind of did this semi radical natural history, which was just very, very minor, very, very minor. But it's like the seed that could, um, you know, be the start of some some different type of way of looking at nature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's the story is interesting. And again, I, I recently talked to um, Jim Costa, who who wrote this. He's written biographies on Darwin and and and, uh, and uh, Russell Wallace. And so that was kind of in the back of my mind. And I was just like, oh, it's so interesting to see the kind of comparison. Um, is this right that he used many of the natural wor words uh, to name animals that he observed and documented um, uh, while he was there? I guess... I don't want to make something bigger than what it is, but that seems important though, right? Because a lot of the times you'll have, uh, you know, folks that are uh, you know, part of empire or whatever, and they come and they name things, what they think it means. But I think using the, the terms from local folks is really important, both historically and currently, um, how we, how we're able to uh, try or to maintain a, a type of, um, you know, peek into what is a local environment? They've been here longer. They've had a lot more invested, uh, you know, kind of cohabitation with with you know the the environment or animals or plants. Um, what are they up to? What are they? What do they call this? What is this? And 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 using that and using that language. How how instructive do you think that was in his situation? But then for uh, further uh, you know naturalists and explorers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
No, it's definitely true that what we call things matters. Um, that I mean, that's all the kind of most recent debates, especially during COVID, of renaming of monuments. Even at Stanford, we did some renaming. I served on a committee to take uh, our first president's name off of a building um, because he was a eugenicist. So what you call something definitely matters, <laughs> even if it's, you know, something us, something us in genus species Latin kind of style. And uh, so Azara was not trained in that kind of, you know, the binomial nomenclature that we learn in ninth grade biology of, uh, you know, the homo sapiens. Um, and he, but he knew that he knew how the system kind of worked. And it was just, you know, Linnaeus had, who was the creator of the system. It was a pretty young system at the time. And there was a lot of debate over what should we use to name things. Um, and eventually it just kind of won out by use, not necessarily because it was the best one, um, which you know, VHS or beta kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Azura knew that was happening, but he also knew that he was finding species that hadn't yet been named in the system, but that the Guarani people there that in where he was living in Rio de la Plata had named these things for a long time in mm -hmm. their own language. And he, those terms were descriptive instead of, usually descriptive instead of, you know, after some dead white guy, which a lot of the, um, you know, the species names today in uh, binomial nomenclature are, are for that honorific purpose. So it's just almost, you know, matter of factly, he was like, these are more practical. I'm going to do this. And so he wasn't, you know, like, crusading for Guarani or anything. He just was like, this This seems practical to me. And interestingly, similar debates were going on about the same time in Mexico City. Um, this one guy, Antonio Alzate, who was a, a Creole scholar, so he was of Spanish descent, born in Mexico City, was a huge, passionate, passionate advocate for um, uh, using Nahuatl in native terms for um, Mexican uh, nature. Um, and there were some very impassioned debates in a lot of the local newspapers where, you know, these uh, men of letters would kind of collect and write to each other. Um, and Azra probably didn't have access to all of these things, but he, it was kind of interesting that he was still thinking about the same question because they were all engaging in the practical uh, work of identifying nature to fit into this European paradigm. I want to stress they were not discovering these species. <laughs> these species had long been known by humans, <laughs> just they were new to Europeans. So there's a lot of scholarship that you might, if you're you know interested in this topic and you go back to books that are a little bit older than ours, you may see, you know, Azara was the first person to name this, or he was the first person to discover this species. And it's not exactly true. Um, um, it's it's more that he was the first person to give it a European, you know, a, official scientific name. And that act itself is colonialism. That's taxonomic colonialism, which Londa Schiebinger, who we mentioned before, one of our professors at Stanford, wrote an amazing chapter on how language was used as a tool of empire, even in natural history. So inadvertently, Azara was both um, complying with the empire and that he was turning these Guarani terms into uh, European 
the European system um, into being used in the European system, um, but also was kind of breaking with it. And then even more, he owes it to the French scholar who actually decided to codify those names as the official names in the early 1800s as the official names in um, these biological encyclopedias. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's such an interesting story. And uh, it's it's interesting when when people look at kind of global history and we look at places on on the earth and we just see how there might be empires that come and go, but there's been a lot of indigenous folks that have you know lived in certain places for much longer than you know whoever was there or whoever you know won the war or something. And I think it's important to obviously take all points of history, but to really respect, you know, folks that have been there for hundreds or thousands of years you know, beforehand. And, and that history looks much different um, in places like Eurasia and things like that than it does in <laughs> North America. But it's very interesting how, um, how how we have this idea of history. So the, the final question I have, each of you can uh, answer it and say any final thoughts that you want on, on the book. Uh, the final question is, um, how, how does understanding natural things uh, in times past help us understand the relationship of humans and their natural world currently? So it's a kind of open-ended question. Um, so uh, Mackenzie, you want to want to go first since I started with you first? Uh, um, I think that when we look, uh, when we go for a hike today, right? Um, we get to put on our, our, in some ways, many of us hike and think, think with the romantics. We embrace the surreal of the wind in our hair and the, and the rocks beneath our feet. And that um, approach to the natural world is so different in many ways from that which people in the past had to the nature that they traversed, mm. right? Um, I mean, Anna made this this last point um, about about the act of naming scientifically is an act of colonialism, right? But so too um, are these different ways of looking at nature. Um, they reveal our priorities, right? So when uh, the uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and and um, created a desire in the European mind for um, a world that is beyond European shores, right? One of the ways um, that happened is through the exoticization, as as Dugu has mentioned, of a much wider natural world, right? And so rather than feeling the wind in one's hair and listening to what locals called the birds that grows up from the bushes, at, at that moment of European expansion, um, there was a desire to monetize the living nature around them, to monetize that living nature for medicinal gain, for uh, resources in order to to just build things, right? Um, and uh, and certainly, science then became an outgrowth or a a parallel track for those two more, in some ways, pragmatic desires. And so, I think that natural things teaches us about the ways in which um, the the work of of science and the work of naturalism sometimes can perpetuate an alienation, a distance 
between us as observers of nature's and transform us into perpetual consumers who lose a lot of knowledge in reifying that consumption. Yeah, that's very nicely said. I, I really, I really agree with with uh, with all of that. Uh, do you? How 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 do you? What are your final thoughts? Uh, uh, how can we understand? Um, you know, natural things in the past and the relationship humans have with it in current times and, and anything else that you, you, you want to mm -hmm. say or end with? Yeah, I think, uh, as Anna said, uh, the categorization and naming are so important tools uh, in the history of um, natural history and botany. So we use our own categories in the book, subtitles. So, for example, copy chapter appears and thought. So all the discussions we have most of the time um, uh, in this interview um, mostly uh, are mostly about the material size of science side of science, right? So it's just like brutal instrument of colonialism and uh, objectification of science, for example. But there's also kind of like feeling and sensational attachment to the um, objects, um, natural things, right? And this is not something unique to pitcher plant or coffee, um, for example, but you can see lots of this kind of discussions, the sensational, you know, uh, meanings of the natural things in the minds of the, let's say, um, European men of science. Um, so it's not only kind of like uh, hard sciences versus, you know, sensations and emotions, they went hand in hand. Even today, we want to think about science as kind of like very objectified and, you know, um, materialized uh, entity. But the feelings and, and the emotions are always there. So I think that and I hope that would also remind us um, that side of the science as well. Mm, yeah, that's, that's great. I, I fully agree with you there, too. That's great. Uh, and uh, Anna, what's uh, what's what do you uh, want to say about about this question? Anything else you want to you want to end with? So I think a lot about the actual physical objects that we still have because um, my work in museums, you definitely use those charismatic objects as we like to call them, things that you know make kids go whoa and really really want to get into learning about history or its past, but. I interested and a couple of people in our in our a couple of contributors chose these. Um, you know, I think about the squid chapter where you know we they things got eaten. Um, sometimes the things aren't there anymore. And in Azra's case, his birds went away. But then we have our lovely chapter on armadillo just before mine, and armadillos are so hard that they have this beautiful staying power. So there is this agency inherent to the materiality of these natural things that makes them either more or less numerous in our current time, which changes the way that we view what nature looked like in the past. Maybe, you know, that we don't have any of these soft, squishy birds that were pretty hard to preserve. They're very delicate, but an armadillo carapace, a little armadillo back, we've definitely got a bunch of those. So not to say that armadillos weren't numerous, but um, it uh, that what things are made of change has an effect on what remains in museum collections and what people see today of these natural things. So um, in that sense, the way that people feel and sense and experience all of these objects um, is also manipulated by time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think that's also important. I mean, you guys in the book touch on these these ideas of things manipulated, how things feel, what's the preservation, and I think it's important to understand context and history uh, of of some things and and the lessons we can learn about. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a one to one of of what goes on in our world, but there's things that you can apply. I think in a in at least in a general aspect. And one thing that I have such an appreciation for is is history and learning from it and continuously learning from it and uh, and hearing histories we don't hear about often. Um, so I, I, I think it's all very relevant. The book is called <clears throat> Natural Things in Early Modern Worlds. Uh, it is out, uh, I think it's out everywhere, right? I think it's out everywhere now. And um, it's absolutely fabulous. It's a beautiful book. Um, I've, I've said before that uh, it's something you could put in your living room or on on a coffee table and people pick it up and look through it. And it's very, very pretty to look at. And then they can hopefully read all the contents inside. Um, to the three of you, uh, thanks so very much for giving me your time. It's uh, it's it's always a, a, a miracle when I can get four people's schedules uh, for at one time, especially if it's different time zones. So big, big, big thanks to all of you and for, for doing such wonderful work. And uh, gladly support each one of you as uh, all the different uh, adventures and, and things that you do within your field. And so again, big, big, big thanks. I had so much fun doing this. Thank you so Thanks much. So much. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs>